Thank you, Ken, and worship team. And Ken, I agree with you. We don't have words to express fully. Um, just thankful for uh, the worship this morning. Um, as we were singing, notice that we were singing two songs that were actually written in Scripture. Uh, Hosanna, roughly written around 1981 years ago, as Jesus enters into Jerusalem for that last time, and the disciples leading the way, laying down their cloaks, and then the crowds begin to gather without much instrumentation, if any at all, began to sing together Hosanna, declaring that Jesus was the Son of the living God, the coming Messiah, the Savior of the world. And so, um, man, just moved my heart to know that we were echoing the songs of the disciples, the saints, and then, of course, this last song, which is quoted at least twice in the book of Revelation, that this will be one of our primary songs in eternity. Again, without instrumentation, just our voices. So what an exciting time of worship this morning. I have a curveball for you, Lou. Um, I know you kind of plan ahead and everything, so you've got some time. When we come back for response time, I would love to start with the bridge of Hosanna. And so you got some time to go work it out, figure out how to do that. And maybe we can sing it three or four times, and then we want a perfect, seamless transition into whatever song you had planned, okay? Need it to be good. Uh, that's where I'd like to start our response time. Uh, thanks, worship team, for that. All right. Uh, we're going to be in Luke 10. So you can go ahead and turn there. A uh, couple big things to cover before we get there. Uh, first of all, uh, Connect Class, an exciting time in our church calendar is three or four times a year we stop and we, um, we collect the folks who have been accumulating in our church who are asking more questions about what Solid Rock is about and where we're headed as a church and how do I become a member. And we, we put on a two-part Connect Class that's coming up in a few weeks, the 19th and the 26th this month. It is two-part. Um, and it will be during the second service. So on those particular Sundays, we would ask that you come to the 9 o'clock service because we really want to know that you're committed. I mean, if you can get up from 9 o'clock to worship Jesus, then we'll let you be members. No. Um, but come to that, and then after that, during the second service, you would go over to the kids' building to kind of that meeting area behind the kitchen, uh, or one of those two meeting areas, and there will be a Connect class for you. So if you're interested in that, please sign up at the kiosk just so we can give you the email reminders and we can notify you if there are any changes uh, for that. So that's coming up. All right. The second and much bigger issue. Um, well aware that there's an elephant in the room at most churches this morning in the United States uh, regarding the events of the last week, week and a half, surrounding Dan Cathy, Chick-fil-A, statements that were made, and then tons of media spin from both sides. And so uh, I'm going to address it briefly for, for two reasons. One, I believe God has a word for us today, okay? So we're going to stick to that. Um, but second of all, um, on issues this big, I think it's important for elders to come together and pray and seek the Lord and search the scriptures on how to respond before we just react. And so I want to give us time to do that as a church. Before we know fully how to respond to all that's going on in the media, I want to have time to meet with our elders to pray together, to seek the Lord together, and determine how he would have his bride respond to, uh, to situations like we experienced this last week. So, but I do have a few statements I want to make, um, just briefly. First of all, um, I think uh, for me it was... Uh, it was really an opportunity to see, you guys familiar with the, the frog in the boiling water illustration? Take a frog, put him in a pot of water that's not boiling, turn the heat on, and over time, as the water begins to heat up, he doesn't realize it, and before you know it, he's boiling, right? Like that illustration, I think, uh, transcends a lot of different things, but I think, for me, I think what we saw this last week are two things. One, that there has been a major uh, shift in morality in the last decade to decade and a half in the United States. While many of us were observing things, we didn't realize the depths of that cult, that morality shift. And so, in many ways, the Christian church is a frog in a pot of water that's heating up. 
The second thing I think we recognize and realize, and I'm realizing this, is that the Christian church um, over the last probably decade has begun to, um, uh, I'm going to say the word allow, as though somebody's staying at the door allowing it in, but we've allowed um, disunity to set in. And I think that was obvious this last week. And those are just two observations I have. One, that morality has shifted a long ways. Um, it's, it's silly to use the, the, the phrase traditional values because what does that mean? I mean, in 100 years, there'll be a new set of traditional values. Um, and we're seeing a shift in that, okay? Just making observations. But two, the church is not as unified as we thought we were. Two observations I have. So I just want to briefly... Um, say a couple things, and then we're going to deal with this um, topic later on. I'd already planned on dealing with it in October uh, from the scriptures uh, with wisdom and counsel and prayer and fasting addressing such an important issue. But a couple things. First of all, um, the elders came together back in May, on May the 1st in our elder meeting, and before this ever was really a topic in our culture, and we talked about what, how does the Bible define marriage, right? If we're going to be an institution that performs marriages, and, uh, and counseling marriages, then what does define marriage? And so um, through biblical study from Genesis 2 through Ephesians 5, Matthew 19, elders have determined clearly the Bible defines marriage as an institution um, of a lifelong covenant between a man and a woman. Okay? It's not something we came up with. It's what the Bible says. And so as Christ's followers, we submit to God's word there. It's not a, a, a situation where we get to pick a side. We, 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 the Bible clearly teaches that. Now, um, now, there is then, however, biblical counsel on how to respond to cultural issues, sin, and certain things. So just two things I would say to you, regardless of what side you land on, okay? I'm not picking on sides. I'm not taking a side. I would just say this. Uh, um, so clearly, the Bible defines marriage between one man and one woman. Romans 3.23 makes a bold statement. It says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Okay? What that means is that every person sitting in this room, including me, including Everybody from both sides have fallen short of the glory of God. Now, because we've all sinned, that does not excuse us then from responsibility, nor does it minimize sin. Some people would take that approach. We've all just messed up, so it's no big deal. In no way does that scripture minimize sin. But what it does say is this, that we have all sinned. So then the Christian's response, the Christ follower's response uh, in issues of morality and sin, I believe should always be a sense of humility and a sense of meekness. I think that your salvation experience should never quit echoing in your soul. But for the grace of God go I. And so I think however you choose to deal with morality, not just this issue, any issue, you should always keep that in mind. But for the grace of God go I. And I believe humility and meekness should be the undertones of how we deal with sin in our culture. Romans 6.23 says what? The wages of sin is death. So we know that morality is a big issue, right? That Christians are to help define in the culture from biblical principles what morality is, okay? Because it's a big issue. The wages of sin is death. But that verse doesn't end there. It goes on to say, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. So I would say this to you if you're a Christian and you want to deal with cultural issues in, the, in this way, especially in the area of morality, that um, as you place emphasis on morality in our culture, whatever it might be, it may be homosexuality this week, it may be something completely different next week, that whatever emphasis you place on it, okay, whatever it is, that you give equal attention, emphasis, and merit to God's grace. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is salvation through Jesus Christ. So to emphasize morality without grace is not the gospel. So I want to make those statements to us as we 
assess and determine how we should react and respond. Um, we realize that things are not the same as they used to be. Tradition is a relative word, right? Tradition changes with the wind, evidently, and it's changing faster and faster. So there's just some, some response that you can uh, mull over later. All right, now if you have specific questions about that and you want to know more, I'm open to um, conversation throughout the weeks, um, but I prefer not to do something like this in email. But if you want to set up a conversation, meeting, coffee, something like that, through email, that's fine. Love to sit down and talk with you about the biblical principles and why this is such a big deal in the eyes of God. Okay? All right. Now on to what God has for us today from Luke 10. The parable of the Good Samaritan. All right. We've got a few more parables left to go through. And hopefully you're putting some tools in your tool chest on how to interpret parables because they're these beautiful word pictures and they have tons of symbolism in them, but how do we unpack them? Do we just engage our imagination and, and, and figure out well, what does this mean for me today and, and so this must mean this must mean this or is there evidence in the text that helps us unpack it? And so Cam brought up the four C's last week, which was incredibly helpful. I guess five, including his name. I'm not sure how that helped us at all, but um, yeah, the, the idea of context is so important. Who is Jesus speaking to? What questions is he responding to? Who's the audience? What, 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 what point is he trying to communicate here? So context is incredibly important. Characters are obviously incredibly important. I'm trying to remember the C's. Uh, contrast. They almost all have contrast. We'll see that again today. He's, he's trying to illuminate something through contrast. And then uh, commentary. Sometimes Jesus will hang around to explain what's going on. So there's some important tools for understanding parables. So we're going to start with context. Parable of the Good Samaritan. Okay. Verse 25. Here we go. And behold, a lawyer stood up to him, being Jesus, to test him, saying. Now, we're not sure that this is confrontational. Okay? This was pretty common for rabbis to be up speaking publicly, teaching, and somebody would stand up and ask a loaded question. Okay? It was just common in their culture. So he stands up and he asks a loaded question. Teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? So his question is, how do I get saved? Fair question. He said to him, Jesus replies, what is written in the law, and how do you read it? Okay, so this is his question back to the lawyer. You're, you're a professor of law. How do you read the law? So the guy says in verse 27, and he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind. Sound familiar? To quote from Deuteronomy, Jesus himself teaches that the law is summed up in two laws, and that's the first one. Love the Lord your God with all that you are. It's vertical. It needs to be a vertical expression of love. We talked about this two weeks ago, how God, what God does to us, he wants to do through us. He wants to bend out. So he's given us grace, he wants us to bend that out towards other people. Now we're coming back the other way. And we're, we're, we're expressing to God our love for him vertically. But then there's also a horizontal component to this as well. It goes like this. Very simple phrase, and your neighbor as yourself. Horizontal. Okay. So the same way you love God, it's fantastic that we as a Christian church come into this place and sing these beautiful love songs to God, okay? I love hearing the saints sing. This morning, for whatever reason, I know we weren't like loud, not a lot of people in this service, but for whatever, like, um, like I could hear Lucy singing. She probably doesn't want me calling her out, but like I could just hear the saints singing the songs of the redeemed this morning. It was beautiful this morning. I loved hearing you guys worship and seeing vertically, God says, do the same thing horizontally. Not worshiping people, but loving in that same way. Okay, so then the guy brings up his issue, and he said to him, well, Jesus responds, you've answered correctly. Now here's the difference. Do this, 
and you'll live. Do this and you'll have eternal life. Do this and you'll have salvation. You know it, now do it, okay? Difference between knowing and doing, right? Okay, so this is all you have to do. You know it now, go do it. Now, the guy's gonna reveal his issue to us with this next thing here. He says this. But he, this is the lawyer, desiring to justify himself. Clearly, we have his heart motive exposed here. He's got an issue with something that just was spoken. So in desiring to justify himself, he says to Jesus, and then who is my neighbor? Now, it's important to to, to notice here what he does is he, the phrase is actually love your neighbor as yourself. He extracts the idea of love, and he just wants to know what? Who's my neighbor? What Jesus is going to do is pull it all back together in one phrase and say you can't, you don't really need to separate the two. As you define who your neighbor is, so you also need to be defining what it means to love your neighbor. Don't separate the two. Okay, and so the guy's problem, his issue is, who is my neighbor? So here's our, here's our main point this morning. You understand the, the parable of the Good Samaritan? This is what Jesus is responding to, defining for this gentleman and for us today who his neighbor is. Jesus replies, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now this is about an eight-hour hike still today. Okay? It's the hike Jesus took coming into Jerusalem, from Jericho to Jerusalem, about an eight-hour journey. Now, in this parable, going the other way. So a person on this journey, this was their whole day. When you get to where you're going after this journey, you're done for the day. Right? Wash my feet, give me a meal, and I'm ready to crash. Okay? So long journey. So this is a man who is going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, going up over the mountains back the other way. And he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, okay? Not an uncommon scenario on that path, by the way. It was a mountainous path, and there were only just a couple of different options you could take, and so robbers would, right, would hide out in the clefts of the rocks and behind stones, and they would jump out and steal stuff from people, and of course, they would leave them there, half dead or dead, and so this is the parable looking at, leaving him half dead. Very common scenario. Now, here's where the parable really begins to ensue, verse 31. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road. So we got a priest. He's on the eight-hour journey, headed somewhere, either going to Jerusalem probably to offer sacrifices or has just been there and headed back to Jericho. Now kind of a sense of he's been clean. And so uh, by, by chance, the priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. That detail is incredibly important. Didn't just pass him by. Where did he pass him by? He, he got on the opposite side and went around him. We'll talk about that in just a minute. But there's a second person. So likewise, verse 32, so likewise, a Levite, okay? Similar to the priest, it's the the clan, the family um, group within Israel, the the group of people that were set aside to take care of the temple. These were, again, like a priest, like holy, holy people. So we got another Levite here, similar to a priest. When he came to the place and saw him, what did he do? He passed by on the other side. Okay, now at this point, we don't really know why. We can make some assumptions. Priest and Levi, I mean, they got places to go, right? It's an eight-hour journey. Got things to do. Got an agenda to accomplish. Okay, so there's one reason that they may have passed him by. Another reason they may have passed him by, Jesus confronts the Pharisees, priests, on this issue often, this sense of self-righteousness. Pharisees were not really good at caring for the needs of people, especially people who were different. Maybe these guys were just, you know, 
a little bit uh, indignant or a little bit um, self-righteous in the fact, and they thought, you know what, this is not our mess to clean up, let's just keep going. Maybe uh, it was a deeper issue of like spiritual cleanliness. These guys, priests and Levites, were clean, religiously speaking. And this guy, probably not a lot, we don't really know, but we do know he's half dead. These guys weren't allowed to touch half dead people or they would become unclean. So that's probably the real reason why We'll get to that in just a minute. Those are just some, some possibilities. But either way, what do they do? They, they, they go out of their way to go around this guy and not help him, the priest and the Levite. Okay? So again, we're looking at these characters. Jesus is contrasting. Now we're going to get the good Samaritan. Samaritan uh, is a person of a different nationality, social class, religion. He's unclean from the get-go. Okay? He's not accepted in Israelite culture from the get-go. But he's going to come by in verse 33. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to the place where he was, being that half-dead person. And when he saw him, he had what? Compassion. So we're looking for contrast. So regardless of the excuses for the priest and the Levi, Jesus exposes why they didn't stop. They didn't have what? Compassion. That's the main difference here. The Samaritan had compassion. That's why he stops. Now, before we get into what he does for the man and then from this lesson learn how we are to love the world horizontally, our neighbors, um, just a few things to note about this, this parable. Though this is a very realistic scenario, it is a parable, meaning this. It's symbolizing something bigger, okay? So is Jesus calling us to stop and take care of people on the side of the road who are broken down or beaten or hurt? Absolutely. But the symbolism is so much bigger, when he talks about the guy being half dead, Jesus, will learn from this parable, is alluding to a world that is laying by the side of the road, half dead. We learn this from the Gospels in Luke 5. Um, Jesus is at the house of Matthew, one of his disciples, who has then also his Levi's, his other name, which uh, from the tribe of Levi, the Levites, same deal. But he's a tax collector, Matthew. Not a, not a very... Um, praiseworthy profession in the culture, okay? Um, I don't know what to equate it to because I'll pick a job and then somebody in this room will be, that's what you do and it'll make you feel bad. Like, yeah, it's like, it's, I mean, it's like go watch Dirty Jobs. Well, that's not even right either. Um, how, about a, uh, how about a person uh, who books gambling like in Las Vegas, okay? And I'm not preaching against gambling or whatever. I'm just saying the guy who's like taking a cut for himself, right? under the table and nobody knows about it. Not a very respectful character, a tax collector, okay? So just giving you some, some insight. So in Luke 5, um, Jesus is at Matthew's house. He's a tax collector, or was. He left that to become a disciple. And here's what we read. And so in verse um, 27 in, in Luke 5, Jesus calls Matthew. And then in 29, it says Levi, but it's the same guy. And Levi, Matthew, made him a great feast in his house. So this is how Matthew responds to the calling of Jesus in his life. I'm going to feed this guy. And so he invites him in, and there was a large company of, a big group of people there. Of who? Tax collectors and who? Others reclining at the table with them. We'll find out in just a minute. It's the idea of these were sinful people. So Matthew invited his friends over. What a great response to Jesus, by the way. Throw a party, invite your friends over. It's a great response. And so what does he do? Does he go out and say, I've got to, I've got to go through the list and edit it and make sure that um, my, my super clean people or friends are coming? No, he goes out and he invites his friends, his lost friends. 
Invites them over to a party. And so then the Pharisees and the scribes in verse 30 have an issue with it. They start grumbling at his disciples. It's interesting they don't just go straight to you. But why do you eat and drink with who? Tax collectors and sinners. Those dirty people. Why do you eat with them? Why do you spend time with them? And so Jesus responds in verse 31. And Jesus answered them, those who are well, right, have no need for a physician or of a physician. But those who are sick, half dead, helpless, hopeless, hurting, right? Those are the ones that I have come to call. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. I think Jesus is talking about the same thing he's talking about in that parable with the illustration of the guy who's half dead, okay? This isn't a cultural issue. This is a a world issue. People who do not have the gospel are half dead. As good as dead, Paul would say, without hope. Don't forget you and I, right? Romans 6, or Romans 3.23, we were all there. Don't get self-righteous and think, oh, I'm, I'm cool. No, we were all there. We were all the guy left on the side of the road. Praise God. Praise God that he does not walk, on the, walk by or pass by on the other side of the road those he finds half dead. That's why I'm here today. Praise God he does not do that. He came to save those who were dying. Okay? So in this illustration of the parable, when he talks about the guy being half dead, I think we need to understand the magnitude. This is not just a guy who got beat up. It's humanity that is broken. It's humanity operating outside of God's created order in rebellion towards God. Okay? Dead in our trespasses, without hope. And so in the parable, when we see that the the issue is that we pass by the guy, you and I need to begin thinking, who do I pass by every day who has no hope? Who do I pass by every day who is dead in trespasses, preparing themselves to spend eternity away from God? Listen, it's okay to talk about the reality of hell and eternity of separation from God. It's okay to talk about that with a broken heart. With a broken heart, a sense of meekness, a sense of humility, a sense of, like we talked about earlier, but for the grace of God, go I. Our hearts should break for the loss, not because they're not religious like us, but because they don't know God. At the end of the day, they put their head on their pillow and they go to sleep at night without hope. Shame wells up in their soul and they don't know what to do with it. So they go out and they do more of the thing that they did to get the shame, trying to medicate themselves. Church, we should be, we should be, without ending, broken for the lost. I think this is what's going on in Matthew's life. He just found the Savior of the world. He invites all his friends in. I want you to be well. I don't care what you do for a living. I don't care what culture says about you. I have found something good, and I want to invite you to it. Jesus, who can save you from your sins. Now, so this is our, kind of our setup for the, uh, the response. The response is the big part of this parable, what the Samaritan does, okay? So he doesn't pass by because he had compassion. Now let's watch and see what he does. Verse 34. He went to him. What did the other two guys do? Went away from him. He went to him. And he bound up his wounds. Touched him in the dirtiest spot on his body, right? Met him at his deepest, dirtiest need. Pouring on oil and wine, 
which was very expensive, by the way. He began to let his resources go to help this guy. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. So this guy was journeying on an animal, right, this long trek, and he goes not out of his way to avoid him. He goes out of his way to get to the guy, gets off, heals his, doctors his wounds, meets his needs, puts him on the animal, self-sacrifice, takes him into town, but that's not it. Look at what he does. Set him on his own, brought him to the inn and took care of him. I'll tell you what, we'll pick up on uh, 35 uh, in just a minute. Okay, so let's just make some observations from what we've read. First thing is this. Um, Jesus is answering what question? Who is your neighbor? Right? That's what he's after here. He's here to teach. So the first thing we see here is Jesus identifies a priest, a Levi, and what? A Samaritan. So here's the first principle right here. Your neighbor is a person. I'll tell you what, let's, let's do that one second. Let's go back to the guy half dead. We've, let's just finish that point. That your neighbor is a person in dire need of eternal hope and salvation. Well, what color is that guy? How much money does that guy make? What moral choices or immoral choices is that person making? Right? It's not, not part of the issue. Right? There's not a geographical boundary drawn here, is there? Your neighbor is the person who lives across the street next to you, in your cul-de-sac, in your neighborhood, in your community, in your town, in your county, in your state. Ge- geography is thrown out the window. Your neighbor is a person who is half dead. Right? Isn't that who the Samaritan's helping here? So first principle is that. Your neighbor is a person who is in dire need of eternal hope and salvation, period. They're going to look, they're going to come in all different shapes and sizes. Ages, ethnicities, backgrounds. Number two, but a Samaritan. That's an important phrase. Not just a guy, not just a common Israelite, but a Samaritan is an important phrase. Your neighbor is a person who is not like you. Okay? Your neighbor is a person who is not like you. I've said this before. Um, the white church is pretty good at reaching the white. The black church is pretty good at reaching the black. The Hispanic church is pretty good at reaching the Hispanics. We see this ethnical boundary, this invisible boundary for some reason around the modern day church, and I don't get it. And Jesus is clearly saying, here's who your neighbor is. He's the guy, he's the girl who doesn't look like you. That implies, obviously, socially, this guy was at a different social standard um, from the Levite and the priests. Just common, everyday Samaritan, socially. Um, we need to think about that, too, in the way we plan events as a church, that we don't plan people out of our events because they cost too much or you have to have, meet certain requirements to get in. Think about that, right? We have to be able to include the person who is not like us. Um, here's the next thing. As he journeyed. Okay, so if you go back to the text, let's just read it again. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed. What does that tell us about the guy? He was going somewhere, right? He wasn't having his quiet time um, just out meditating on the things of God, right, with no agenda. He was journeying somewhere. He was on his way to a place. He had an agenda, right? You see where this is going? Your neighbor is a person who is not convenient in your life. That's what I get from the parable. And that one of the issues probably that the priest and Levite had, that guy wasn't on their agenda. 
He wasn't on the Samaritan's agenda either. Think about that for our daily lives. Not on our agenda. Your neighbor is a person who is not convenient in your life. This is the last thing I want to point out before we move on. Simple phrase. This is what he did. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, what did he do? He came to where he was. Okay? So you got this idea. It's not a real wide road, but they're traveling probably wide enough for a couple of carts, donkeys to pass by, 10, 12 feet wide probably at the most. And so it's not like the Levites and priests could go a long ways out of the way, but still they did it. They went to the opposite side of the road, up against whatever boundary it was, and they walked past him. The Samaritan coming along was probably not in the bar ditch looking for this guy. He was probably in the middle of the road. So what does he do? He goes to him. Very simple teaching. Your neighbor is a person you will have to move towards. I hope that this, this parable is rocking our world right now. I think Christians are great at, at, at well, I'll say this. The Christians are decent at sharing the gospel with people who look like them or people who are already asking religious questions. People that we're comfortable being around, right? People we're comfortable talking to. But this should be wrecking our everyday life right now. Jesus says, you want eternal life? That's great. Love God with everything that you are, and I want you to love your neighbors yourself. Well, who's my neighbor? Here it is. It's a person in dire need of eternal hope and salvation. But I got a bunch of people around me, right? You know, that's not hard to find, is it? Even in the Bible Belt, that's not hard to find. Your neighbor is a person who is not like you socially, nationally, ethnically, religiously, or morally. Your neighbor is a person who is not convenient in your life. And your neighbor is a person who you have to move towards. You have to step out of this rut that I live in, my nine to five, my daily routine, for a five-minute detour, a 10-minute detour, a five-hour detour, whatever it is, and step inside. Let me give you an example of how I'm falling miserably short of this, and God's convicted my heart over the last uh, probably two years, okay? I I tend to spend a lot of time at Starbucks, Um, and, uh, and so... Um, I notice people who are regulars. There's a regular at a Starbucks I, I, I go to sometimes. I don't go as much as I used to, who I know is, is not a believer. And matter of fact, I think he's a diehard atheist because I hear him debate with other Christians. And I try to avoid this guy like the plague. I do. I, I pay attention to the books he's reading. I'm like, I just don't want to have this conversation. Okay, so that's first layer of conviction, right? I'm reading this going, oh, okay. I kid you not, um, about two months ago, uh, it was on, on a day off, um, I decided, I had some extra time, I was going to go treat myself to some Madeleines way over on Camp Bowie, okay? I don't frequent that place. I've probably been there twice in my whole life, so don't go judging me. <laughs> I don't wear pink and I don't play with Barbies anymore. So I go to Madeleines. It's, it's, kind of, it's, kind of it's kind of a girly place, but, I mean, you notice guys, right? You know, I, I'm hoping there's some other dudes going to be there because I'm just kind of feeling kind of feminine. So I go in, I make my order, it, but it's on my mind. I bypass that Starbucks, and I don't know why. I, I thought about that guy. I'm like, you know what? I should really stop by that Starbucks sometime soon and really just try to have a conversation with this guy. Um, I kid you not. I go in, I order my stuff. I go outside to eat, and guess who's sitting there? All the way across town. That guy. And so I'm wrestling like crazy on what I should do. Now, here's the thing. I wish I could say that I went and sat down with him and said, hey, I recognize you from across town. How you doing? Start a conversation and try to steer it towards the gospel. I didn't. I delayed because I didn't know how I was going to do it and what I was going to do. And before you know it, I get out there. When I finally worked up the courage, he was gone. 
okay? God's not done with me on that issue. I hope I can come back and tell you six months, a year later, how God opened a door for me to share the gospel with this guy, okay? It's not my job to save him, right? It's just my job to love him the way God's loved me and let God do the work. So there's an example of how I didn't do this, okay? I didn't go out of my way um, to, to spend time to invest in a person who I knew from the beginning religiously thought different from me, had a totally different social aspect on life. I, I didn't do it. So God is hopefully wrecking our perspective. Now the next thing is this. Jesus doesn't separate the two issues from neighbor and loving your neighbor. He, in this parable, builds in what it looks like to actually love your neighbor. Because like, if we could just identify the neighbor then, and not define what it means to love them, then we could go throw tracks at them. Right? We could go do whatever our version of love is and say, well, I'm doing this to the person you said do it to. Or if Jesus didn't define who our neighbor is, he just said love them, then we could use the Bible's definition of love and then pick who we want to do that to. But he doesn't. He says, no, I'll define both. I'll define both, who you're supposed to love and how you're supposed to love them. And so this is where the parable goes next. So let's pick this up and let's start in 34. I know we've read it. Let's just read this again. He went to him. He bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. Verse 35. And the next day, so he's not done yet. The next day he took out two denarii. And he gave them to the innkeeper, saying, take care of him. And whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Now, we'll wait. We'll save that next verse for just a minute. Let's talk about what he has done for this man. First of all, he, obviously, he went to him. So what does it look like to love your neighbor? It means to move towards people. Don't wait for people to move towards you. You move towards people. Now, we have this, um, this issue of personality and introvert, extrovert, um, attention-driven, like to stay in the background. We have all these different personalities in the room, right, being taught this parable. Here's the thing. Um, personality does not excuse us from the commands of God, okay? Um, I, believe it or not, I, I, standing up in front of people and talking scares me to death, okay? So don't think that when I go to Starbucks on Monday, I'm just as bold and comfortable talking in front of people as I am right here. No, I walk in, uh, and I feel the same way I did when I was in elementary school, and I'd walk into a cafeteria, overwhelmed and scared to death on where I was going to sit. That's how I feel generally. But here's the thing. My personality or my feelings or my confidence or lack of confidence don't excuse me from the commands of God. And so if I'm going to love my neighbor, he defined who our neighbor is, right? Somebody different from us. Somebody you're going to have to go out. They're not going to be on your agenda. But I have to move towards them. I'm going to have to make the effort and move towards them. Second thing is this. I've got to be willing to meet their needs. I had this uh, conversation with a, uh, a lady um, who has a PhD in psychology and counseling and then a, a person who was a um, biblical studies philosophy we, major and we were having this discussion about um, how we meet people's needs. It was just a fun conversation. We were talking about sharing the gospel with people who are like hungry and in need. What do you, which one do you do first? Um, and, and so we were just, it got kind of uh, crazy and we were talking about, well, if I have a heart attack, um, 
and what I need you to do is call an ambulance, okay? That's the, the immediate need in my life, okay? So we were talking about, would well, you share the gospel with the person, or do you call the ambulance first? It was just a fun philosophical conversation. Either way, call 911, and then let them hear you talk, or whatever you want to do. But here's the point. A person has a heart attack, call an ambulance. But, but what, a, um, what a relevant opportunity to share the gospel, if the person's conscious, right? Both. So this is kind of a both-and scenario. This is not go out and cure all the social injustices of the world and God's going to somehow save people. It's also not go find people who are hurting and who are in need and just tell them that Jesus loves them and don't do anything to meet their needs. It's a both-and, right? It's a big debate right now in evangelicalism. Do we go out and meet physical needs to share the gospel or we just go share the gospel and which one do we do? I think that what we're learning from this parable is it's a both-and. If you're going to communicate God's love to a person, you're going to meet their, didn't God meet your needs? <laughs> Doesn't he meet your needs? Then if we're going to love people the way we love God, and the way God loves us, then we're going, to, we're going to meet needs. I think we should be more active in social injustices. Connected to the gospel. Call the ambulance and share the gospel. Okay? So the good Samaritan meets his needs. He bandages his wounds, doesn't he? Expensive. Pulls out his wine and all this stuff and anoints him and Gives him his best stuff, but here's the next thing. He set him on his own animal. The good Samaritan sacrificed himself. Ooh, this one's going to be hard. Um, we as a church are getting geared up uh, to, um, to be obedient to Christ in the mission to the ends of the earth. Okay, We're a young church. I wouldn't say we started here really well, but we, um, by God's grace, are getting there. You're going to begin hearing in a few weeks about the Philippines, starting a new work, where there is no work at all. This is what we call unreached people groups. Okay? We're going to be sending a pilot group there in uh, end of September to do some investigative work, set up a plan so next year we can take a group there to begin this ongoing relationship with the people of the Philippines on these remote islands. Okay? That's what God's calling us to. Now, to go from never doing a mission trip, never going out of your way to do anything for the cause of Christ, and then jumping to the Philippines, that's a pretty big step to make. Okay? It is. Uh, it involves a lot of self-sacrifice. Did you know that you have to pay your own way to go? What? Yeah, self-sacrifice. The guy got off his animal and said, here, you ride, I'll walk. Now, practically, when that plays out in our daily lives, um, honesty here, Hallie and I are wrestling with this big time right now. Um, you may have found out she just got a new job, okay? Um, she's a teacher, doesn't make tons of money. But she goes from the poorest school district in Parker County to a very decent school district in Tarrant County, so her pay is going to go up a little bit, okay? Not getting rich, but we have more money, and we're wrestling with, God, what's this for? And we, we wrestled with the whole smartphone thing. We decided that God wanted us to stay away from smartphones to try to get out of debt, so we did that this year. And so um, we've been toying with the idea of getting the smartphones back, and it's just always a song. Here's the point. Like, God's wrestling with Hallie's heart big time right now. And what she realized is this. We... She, she discovered um, Compassion International. If you haven't been to their website, go check it out. It's incredible. It's the great place of merging, meeting needs, and sharing the gospel to kids who are starving to death. Okay? You can go adopt a kid, that sort of thing, but it's a legit, trustworthy program. So she was realizing it costs about $35 a month. What does it cost to have a smartphone? $35 a month. So we were talking about, well, let's, we've, we've got out of that debt. We, well, let's get our smartphones back. And she's like, no, you get your smartphone, and then I'll take my money, and I'll, I'll, I'll adopt a kid from Compassion International. Right? Now, should we feel guilty that we have smartphones and money? No, that wasn't the point. The point is she's saying, you know what? I want to give a kid my, my horse. That simple. 
You ought to be married to somebody like that. Yeah, wrecking my world right now. And so he sacrifices himself. Now, whatever God calls you to, if it's the Philippines next year, fantastic. Get ready. It's going to cost you. <laughs> it's going to cost you a lot of money and a lot of time and your vacation, the whole deal. But as you begin to make steps towards this, right, steps in obedience towards loving your neighbor the way God's called you to love your neighbor, go out of your way to love people who are not like you, no matter what, it's always going to require sacrifice. Go to Starbucks. Instead of going through the drive-thru, decide to go in. It's going to cost you time. Get to know your barista by name. Think about that. Uh, instead of grumbling the next time you go to a pump and it, the pay of the pump's not working, right? Oh, God, how inconvenient that is. Have we come so far in 20 years? I mean, really? You used to have to pay. Before that, they came and washed your window and got the money. But when I grew up, we had to go in and pay. How about instead of grumbling about that, going, okay, God, I don't know what you're doing here, but I'm going to go out of my way. What a big sacrifice, right? Go inside. I'm going to at least be nice to the clerk. You know they wear name tags? I think that's, that's, like, I think that's a beautiful way for you to get it in with the person calling by name. You ever been called by name by a complete stranger because you're wearing a name tag? It'll catch you off guard. Like, Whoa, how did you know my name? You don't have to, I mean, just, hey, Robert, how's your day going, man? You know, whatever the response is, fantastic. Well, hey, man, I'd, I'd love to pray for you. Is there something specific I could pray for as I'm leaving? Sweet. See you. Begin that relationship. Make that investment. Then the next time you come and you go and the pump's working, you might go, you know what? I'm going to go see if Robert's working. I'm going to go back in. I'm going to sacrifice my conveniences. Now, that's small, and it just continues to grow and get bigger as you head to the ends of the earth. Okay? So, sacrifice. All right. The next thing he did, he brought him to the end. He took care of him. This, is, this, one, this one's big for us as a church, okay? We are guilty of this. He brought him to the end. He took care of him. So, like, he kept him with him the rest of the day. Then the next day, he took out some money. and He gave it to the innkeeper saying, take care of him. So, the next day, he's taking care of him. But look at what else he's going to do. Whatever you spend, I will repay you when I do what? Come back. He's investing for the long haul here. He's going he's gonna to make sure this guy gets up on his feet. We're talking about lost people becoming saved here. Not a, a, a person with a broken leg getting better. We're talking about lost people getting saved and investing in their lives for the long haul. Um, you may be familiar with the, the concept of the multiplication effect. Um, pyramid schemes use it. Um, businesses use it as a way to get people involved and you get people under you and the whole deal. Okay, you know how multiplication works. I just I created a paradigm in, on, on an Excel spreadsheet this two weeks ago on a discipleship paradigm just to see what the numbers would be after three years. If you took five spiritual leaders, okay, we've got four elders here, a couple guys on staff, other spiritual leaders among us, but just take five, five spiritual leaders. Have those five spiritual leaders begin investing in two people apiece, maybe a lost person and a believer. You say, well, why would you do that? Well, because we have so many believers in our church today who are not discipled. That's why, okay? They're not done yet. And you begin investing in both. Two people. Okay, just two. And with the goal in mind, I want to lead this person to Christ. I want to take the person who's already a Christian and, and, and help them become a disciple maker. Over the period of three to six months. I think the longest span I put on there was like 11 months. Okay, You do this over the period of three years. The multiplication paradigm extends out. And very easily in three years, we could have reached 450 people in three years' time with five spiritual leaders willing to invest. Okay? We could do it two ways. We could hold an event and call 450 people there, right? We could probably do that. We did it the other day, right? Share the gospel, lead some of those people to Christ, high-five each other when it's done, or we can invest for the long haul in people's lives. 
Now, this is not a program. This is something you would just have to do. You know what? I'm taking this seriously. I'm going to invest in the long haul. Who is an unbeliever that God just keeps bringing into my path? Maybe you've already had discussions with this person. You know what? I'm going to go for the long haul. Who's the person who you know you're going to have to go out of your way and you know they're going to be a thorn in your flesh and they're going to irritate you and all that kind of mess and they do not like you? Who's that person? Who's the person in your life right now who's a young believer who's asking some really good questions and they keep coming to you and saying, well, how does this work? And if God's sovereign, what happens here? And, and what about the kids? And asking those great questions and say, you know what? I'm going to intentionally, I'm not just going to answer questions when they come to me. I'm going to begin building a relationship. Hey, what if you and I every other week got together and had lunch or coffee? Talk about what the Lord's doing. Talk about what we're reading in the Bible. Pray for each other's needs. And begin investing intentionally in people for the long haul. Guess what happens to the kingdom? It explodes. All right, we'll, we'll move on. We'll come back in a few months and hit that again. Um, Here's the point. The good Samaritan invested into the man's life. Not just his immediate needs, his life. Met his needs immediately, the next day, and when I come back. Do you, do you have those relationships in your life? Like, I'm the pastor. I'm just be honest with you. Those are easy because people come to me. Okay? Not because I'm good at it. It's just because I, I, this is what I do. Okay? I, I know it's hard because you're like, well, how do I, how do I go about this? Consider the Good Samaritan. On the beginning of this journey, if he said, how do I go about finding a person in need, meeting their needs, investing in them for the long haul? You would say this, just keep walking. Just keep, keep journeying, but do it differently. Do it with your eyes open. That's how you find the person. Do your life tomorrow with your eyes open. Looking for the person who's just out of your path, just out of your social class, just out of your comfort zone, just enough of an inconvenience. And it's a faith move. Walk their way. Walk their way. Start there. Now, here's some things in conclusion. In order to love your neighbor, we are going to have to do a few things. First thing is this. We're going to have to drop our prejudices. It's going to keep coming up because it's all over the New Testament. We're going to have to drop our prejudices. Um, you could say, well, this is the way I was brought up. That doesn't excuse any sin, okay? I was brought up to be prejudiced. I was. Culturally speaking, small community and people in my family brought me up to look down on people who were not white. It's sin. I've repented of that. God has birthed in me a new compassion for people I'm able to see now the way God sees people, that our differences are the beautiful, cosmic, um, stained glass that comes together as the people of God. And the blue is not important than the yellow or the red or the green. It's the collage that comes together as God's creation humanity. We've got to get over our prejudices, ethnically, socially, right, nationally. It's different religiously. Let's quit we were talking about this morning how good the Mormons are at missions. We need to have the Mormons come in and do some missions lectures here at the church. Um, I'm not suggesting we do that. But I am suggesting this, that we don't just automatically classify people and shut the door. Well, they're already spoken for. Stay away from them. No, let's engage people who are different, who think differently than us. Right? Let's show them that we're not prejudiced against whatever it is that they believe. What, even lifestyles. We'll, we'll get to that in just a minute. Um, In order to love our, our neighbors, we're going to have to drop our conveniences, which is what Jesus calls dying to self. 
period, bottom line. You got, you got two plants you can water here. The mission of God or your own life. And you can't water them both. You can't be allegiant to both. So you know what? I'm going to invest in somebody else's life more than I invest in my own. We tend to be a church culture that says, as soon as my needs are met, I'm good for meeting other people's needs. Um, when it comes to giving money in the church, the Bible teaches tithes and offerings. The tithe is like the 10%. It's the basic foundation of like responsibility and, and joy and worship. It's what Jeff talks about and Joe talk about, our joy and worshiping God. Offerings is above and beyond. Did you know we're called to do both? Like offerings go up and down, and, and sometimes the need is big, and maybe you can't get off work to go to the Philippines, but you're like, you know what, I can give big to that and do a cheaper vacation this year or cut back on Christmas presents, and I can help somebody go to the Philippines. Dying to self, okay? It's a Christ-like principle. Here's another thing. In order to love your neighbor, you and I are going to have to move towards the lost. We're going to have to begin missional living. Missions is not something we do one week in the Philippines, Missional living tomorrow, tomorrow morning, on your way to work. Missional living is simple in the fact that it can be somebody, maybe you cut somebody off, God forbid, and instead of avoiding that person, pull up next to them and apologize and go, I'm so sorry. This basic principle of, right, owning your mistake. And it can, it can become a conversation with a barista, a store clerk, a waitress, a waiter, a coworker across the cubicle, right? Missional living. Tomorrow. Not at the end of September in the Philippines. Tomorrow. Missional living. Here it is. In order to love your neighbor, you're going to have to invest your life, which is your time and your resources. You're going to have to invest your time and your resources. Clearly from the parable, right? He didn't drag the guy into a village and goes, anybody have bandages? He said, nope, I got, I got it right here. Does anybody have an extra horse? Nope, I've got a horse. Means I'm going to walk? Fine. He invested his time, he invested his resources to take care and meet the needs of a half-dead half man. Um, two things in closing. One, Solid Rock Missions. Um, I want to say this, that we as a church culture historically, especially in the Southern Baptist world, um, the, the Southern Baptists are, are, are really... Um, I would use the word aggressive, proactive in reaching the ends of the earth. Like you can give to the Southern Baptist Convention and every penny you give, you can designate to go into the pocket of a person who's in a village, in a tribe, on a desert, you know, wherever. And it's a fantastic part of the mission program. Um, the cooperative program that birthed up um, in, in the Southern Baptist world has been fantastic for reaching unreached people groups. But the, here's the hang up. What it did is afforded people to, not, to no longer go out of their way to get to the ends of the earth, but simply send money, okay? And so resources was kind of the thing. So 20 years ago, it was, I mean, we pushed these offerings, Lottie Moon and Annie Armstrong, and you know, the list goes on and on, these fantastic missionary examples, and we would raise money. Beautiful, don't quit doing that, right? But that doesn't excuse us then from going out of our way to invest our time in reaching the lost, so we're in the process right now, we've commissioned our missions team uh, to, to begin to balance us back out, to uh, begin to not just send money, I mean, we do send a lot of money, but to begin coordinating and setting up and planning on sending people to the ends of the earth, both, which means we, we're having to reallocate resources to help do that. Um, you'll hear more about this, I'm still in all Jeff's thunder, but within three to five years, we want to be able to be such a giving church, this should blow your mind, that we actually support a family on the mission field. 
100%. We're just giving chump change right now. Well, that's going to be expensive. Yeah, it means we'll have to die to ourselves. We'll have to invest our time, our resources, right? It means I might have to do without my smartphone for one more year. And so there's the first thing. The second thing is this, and this should, this should be the umbrella over this whole thing, even the issue this last week with Chick-fil-A. This should, this should, this should resound in your soul. It's not an issue, it's a person. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, and your soul, everything that you are, and love your neighbor. It's not a program, it's not an issue, it is a person. Racism, it's not an issue, it's a person created in the image of God. Prostitution. Anybody in reaching out to prostitutes right now? You know we've got a bunch in our community. Las Vegas Trail is huge for prostitution. Anybody reaching out to the prostitute? It's not an issue. It's a person. Most of them women. Horrific, horrific stories of how they got there. Talk about half dead. Go to sleep at night in that lifestyle with no hope and no way to get rid of the shame. Sex trafficking. It's not a, it's not a cultural issue. It's for people. Homosexuality. It's not an issue. It's for people. Inner city gangs. Oh, it's dangerous. Yeah, gospel's dangerous. It's not, a, it's not an issue. It's not a crime issue. These are people. Starving children. What is the average? 25 to 28,000 children a day die of starvation, malnutrition, and lack of medical supplies. It's not an issue. These are people. I have a four-year-old and a, a 14-month-old. The thought of one of them dying of starvation, right? It's not an issue. These are little people. Jesus is saying this. Love the Lord your God with all your mind, everything that you are. God is a person, not a concept. And love your neighbor. Who's my neighbor? Your neighbor is a person. Not an issue, not a program. Let's quit calling it outreach programs. And let's start reaching out to people. Let's close in prayer. And, uh, Hopefully the worship team is ready to come back up and lead us in response. Uh, let's, let's pray together, but just maybe just silence across the room if we could today. Uh, maybe you would just take a moment to compare yourself to the characters in this parable. I mean, I'm just what I'm going to do. I find myself in my everyday life Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, even Saturday. I'm more like the priest than I am this good Samaritan. And so maybe right now you would just go before the Lord and, and confess your own sin and, and repent of your own choices. And, and, and that would just be between you and God. You don't need to come tell me and, 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 and air your laundry. Um, if you do want somebody to talk with you and pray with you, um, as always, our prayer partners are already positioned in the back. That's that corner in front of the glass. They, they, that's the... They're back there to do that with you, to pray with you and talk with you. Uh, if you want to come to the front and kneel and pray, just pour your heart out before the living God and, and do that.
If you're here today and, and, and you are not a Christian, please hear the gospel. Your sin separates you from God. Don't start tallying up your list. Your list is just as dark and ugly and big as mine. Your sin separates you from God, but God sent his son to down a cross to pay the penalty of your sins, to give you hope and eternal life. And the only thing that you are to do at this moment is to believe on him. That's it. The moment you believe, the Holy Spirit of God crashes down on you like a, like a wave of goodness, washes out all the shame and guilt and filth and fills you with new life. This is the question that this guy was asking. How do I get that? Jesus would say simply, believe that I am who I say I am and that I've come to do what I say I've come to do and that in me you can have it. Forgiveness of sins. If that's you today, I hope that you will run to the arms of Jesus. Don't pretend like there's no sin. We can all agree on that. It's there. But run to Jesus with your arms open wide, ready to drop your baggage and take hold of the grace that he has for you today. Father, thank you for speaking uh, to us, God, in such a bold and uh, convicting way. And thank you for, um, first of all, not walking by on the other side of the road when you pass by me. But God, thank you for today, for the message that, that shows me that you're calling me to do the same. I confess in front of the church, in front of my brothers and sisters, God, that I have fallen short in this area. God, continue to compress me into the image of Christ that I could learn what it means to love you with all that I am and love my neighbor as myself. God, we pray this in the powerful name of Jesus.